Alright, so hello everyone and welcome on today's episode of The Sorted Skeptics. We are going to be talking about the epistemology of truth. Because it seems now, right before the Canadian election, it seems like a lesson we could all use right before we decide who the hell our slave masters are going to be. Right, Tim? <laughs> Indeed. All welcome right. everyone to the show. And this is a topic I think we've wanted to do for quite a long time. And I couldn't agree more, Tim. So let's get after it and try to figure out how the hell we determine what is true and what is false. So, Tim, why don't you take us through a little bit about what we're going to be discussing today. Sure thing. So, one of the best quotes and truths in the latest Marvel movie, Spider-Man Far From Home, comes from the villain Mysterio, who says, It's easy to fool people when they're already fooling themselves. Let me say this again. It's easy to fool people when they're already fooling themselves. So I think this means that if you can't be honest with yourself, then it's highly unlikely you'll be able to perceive the truth in general. So if you don't know who you are, your strengths and challenges, or understand your motivations, then how can you have the tools to know what's real outside of you? For example, I recognize that I'm very passionate about ethics and morality and the idea that speech and actions matter very much since they affect other people and that life does have a purpose waiting to be discovered for those who are willing to seek it. But, as Jordan Peterson has pointed out, not everyone is quick to adopt the self-responsibility required that a meaningful life entails. I passionately argued for the position with people um, face-to-face, which has pushed them away instead of, from what I can tell, embrace or consider these ideas. So... I try to recognize my own stubbornness and sometimes dogmatic or closed-minded thinking. Overall, I think this was a great movie mainly because it contains some very relevant themes for our current predicament as a society, the main one being the theme of truth and deception. And yeah, you know what? That movie, I actually enjoyed it a lot more than I thought I was going to. Mm -hmm. Um, I really like how this, this idea of it's easy to fool people when they're already fooling themselves. It, it seems like if the programming is already there for you to accept lies as truth because of mental gymnastics and this kind of thing, those are people that are going to be a lot more vulnerable to things like fraud and lies and malfeasance and all these other kinds of things because I guess the programming for critical thinking, it just isn't there. Yeah, the encouragement for critical thinking um, isn't there and we need to pay attention to what what our culture and society is telling us both explicitly, like, out in front and implicitly, like, what Mm -hmm. they apply. And I was going to say, it's easy. In our world, we have a million distractions. So it's so easy to be distracted by one thing to the next. And how do you focus, right? So I encourage us to develop that idea to focus on things and discern, okay, what am I going to pay attention to and not? Yeah, because right. how we pay attention, I mean, it's sort of like paying money for things, right? Like, you, you only have so much time. It's the only resource you can't get back. So if you're going to spend time on distractions, it's like, okay, well, you know, there's, that's fine in moderation like everything else. But learning to recognize what's a distraction, that's probably pretty important, right? Mm-hmm. So that's why I think it's important that we discuss the epistemology of truth so that we can make sure that we're not getting lied to. Or at least if we are, we can see it for what it is. Like, you know, I'm sure you've been in those kind of conversations where 
you know, you know the person's lying to you and they know that they're lying and they know that you know that they're lying. You and can feel it. And a little bit. It, it becomes kind of awkward, right? Because it's like, uh, what are we doing right? What are we, what are we doing right now? <laughs> yeah, you ask yourself, are you going to confront them or not? Yeah. So, I mean, like you can uh, probably get into a lot of these conversations this weekend, especially. It's almost become a bit of a cliche that Thanksgiving yeah. is going to be the time where you got that... Uh, Looming you, election. you got your libertarian <laughs> uncle coming over there getting a little bit too drunk bitching about the government. It's like, oh yeah, I've probably been that guy. <laughs> Yeah, right. it's 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 fun, but again, this time I was I was very well behaved. I did not respond to any of the bait. Good for you. I didn't take you didn't take the bait. No, I was too busy uh, cooking and all that stuff, so I had a, <laughs> a ready excuse to just sort of ignore the stupidity of, you know, people going on about the latest lie they've heard on the news, and just they're so convinced that it's a hundred percent true, and you're just like, okay, well, you know, you clearly haven't looked into it at all, but there's no way I'm going to reason you out of a position you weren't reasoned into in the first place. And that's been a huge lesson that I've learned over the last year where it's like, uh, well, Tim, let's take it back to uh, the book of Matthew. Right. Because this is what I do now. I'm one of these people that preaches Christian theology because I think it's more fun. Have you ever tried trolling Christians? They just turn the other cheek. But you try trolling atheists? Oh, man, that's where the fun is. <laughs> I'm telling you, man, that's where the fun is. So the book of Matthew, I think, was it 7th Matthew 6 or something like that? It's in there about how you don't cast pearls before swine. Right. And that's... I think this is a super important passage where it was, it's been recognized for thousands of years that it's like, you know, if you have something wise to share with people, you probably don't want to cast it in front of people who have absolutely no way of internalizing it or appreciating it or even engaging with it in any meaningful way. Exactly. It's just going to be frustrating for both of you. So, hey, turn that other cheek. Yeah, exactly. And that reflects the experience of social media and trying to have, like, philosophical discussions with other people who yep. may or may not be receptive and may use deflective tactics or ad hominems. Or... And then once they lose, they can just drop out of the conversation and it's like, that's sort of the end of it. Yeah, it's or like, ignore what you're saying completely. Completely, just you start, yeah. start talking past each other and it almost becomes yeah. easier eventually to just be like, all right, well, I'm just going to follow groups that already agree with me. And then you could just scroll through and be like, yep, 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 <laughs> yep, yep. What am I doing? Yep, yep, yep. Agree with that. And then you maybe you see a group that you haven't seen in a long time. Well, wait, I totally disagree with that. And you go in there, you're just like, there's, there's no way into this conversation. Yeah, you can't really force anybody to believe something. But I think you can at least plant the, plant the seed, so mm -hmm. to speak. And see where it goes from there and decide whether it's a fruitful conversation yeah. to pursue. Or not. Well, I think uh, online it's especially difficult. Because, I mean, a lot of the, the stuff going on right now with the election coming up, there's a lot of people that are trying to discuss the morality of voting strategically. And I'm thinking, okay, well, trying to explain morality to these people who think that voting is a moral concept, deciding for other people how they're going to live is a moral concept. It's like, no, there's, there's no way they're going to understand when I explain to them that voting strategically is not a moral act. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? Like, like you never even approach it because like you just have two completely different meanings for these words. And I think that is one of the biggest problems is when you have different definitions for what words mean. And I think that's how we start talking past each other. Because if, if I'm talking about morality as a universal principle that we have to apply to everybody in all circumstance, and you're talking about morality as like a subjective preference about how you feel in the moment, we're, we're not really having a conversation. So I think, I think that's a, a problem we run into as well. Absolutely. Um, so I think we need to honor and value truth more than ever since we're experiencing what I would call a truth meaning freedom and morality crisis. If you're paying enough attention, 
you can see that we are swimming in a sea of lies being transmitted to us in our day-to-day -day lives at work, through the media, in politics, in religion, in schools, and perhaps where it matters most, at home. So let me ask you, aren't you tired of constantly being told lies in whichever level of analysis you can sense them? It does get a little annoying, I'll be honest. You know what I mean? What's that expression like, don't piss in my face and tell me it's raining? Yeah. <laughs> like, if you've ever had somebody do that to you, you know how frustrating it is to just have someone piss in your face because you know they're doing it. And it's deliberate. You're, you, would, you would tell them to you know put it away, but you know that if you open your mouth to speak, the piss will go in your mouth. <laughs> yeah, and if you speak about it, then that could, you know, yeah. hit a panic button or, you know, some sort of trigger, right? There, there is a certain way of, once you trigger people's narrative, or I guess you question it in some way, something kind of snaps and they have to respond emotionally. Jonathan Haidt talked a lot about this uh, in The Righteous Mind and The Happiness Hypothesis, that whole rider and the elephant thing. Right. Where if you trigger the elephant, it doesn't matter how much that rider wants to keep control of it, it's going to run away. Or it's going to go in a direction that the rational mind can only sort of hang on to. It can't really control. Yeah, we can't deny the emotional and intuitive nature of ourselves. Yeah, and stay right. tuned to the end of this episode. Because as we get towards the end, we're going to try to lay down exactly what the narrative is. Because I've been trying to figure this out for the last few years. What exactly is the narrative that's being spoon-fed? And I think we got it figured out. And it's actually one of the reasons that this podcast exists at all. So we're, uh, we're going to try to lock down exactly what the narrative is so that you know what you want to either question or not question. Great. So continuing on, with the dominance of subjectivity, moral relativism, and the willful ignorance of objective morality and truth, we have witnessed many destabilizing effects in our society. Now, I'm not saying that all personal or subjective truths are invalid or wrong, but when a certain mode of thinking dominates on a wide scale, like in politics, for example, and this doesn't involve any critical thinking, then we have a problem, especially when the dominating consciousness believes there is no such thing as truth itself. Consider this. In psychology, and more specifically attachment theory, there's a concept called the mode of psychological equivalence in which an individual cannot differentiate between beliefs and facts or eternal and external reality. This mode of experience can foster self-victimization as well as they are constantly on the receiving end of things happening to them as opposed to accepting personal responsibility and acknowledging some of the things they have, may have done or said to bring about unfavorable outcomes. So this would be in the case where it's like, uh, I feel offended Therefore, you are offensive. Yeah. You know, offense is only ever taken. It's never given. Right? It's sort of an old <laughs> truism that you can't really give someone offense. They have to choose to take it. It's like a transactional kind of relationship. So if someone says, well, I've taken offense, you're like, well, I, I didn't give you any. I don't really understand what the issue is. I just have a, a difference of opinion on a certain issue or idea. And then it's like, no, I feel personally offended by that. Therefore, you are wrong. Yeah, and the usual thing is to go go on the attack rather than take a reflective stance, for example, and maybe ask yourself, hey, wait, why am I offended about this in the first place? Yeah, well, it's often way easier to just poke holes in your opponent's argument rather than reevaluating your own. You know, yeah. It's, it's, a way, it's way more fun, I suppose. So there's <laughs> definitely more of an incentive to do it, right? But if you have... It's a lot less work. Yeah, so, I mean, if you have to, uh, you know, choose the line between hard truths and the line to easy victories i mean 
you know, the long line into easy victories might be worth standing in if it comes with an easy victory. <laughs> Depends on, I guess, how you see it. Yeah, <laughs> I suppose. Yeah, but the hard truth line is what always... you and what you want. <laughs> so, so tell me about this mode of psychological equivalence. What is uh, what is going on there? So this is basically when you grow up. This happens when you grow up with an insecure attachment okay. so part of it might be due to trauma or parents not really allowing you to verbalize your emotions or needs or handle them in a healthy way and so as a result you develop a like an ambivalent or an avoidant attachment style yeah where just relationships are too dangerous so you either avoid them or you suppress yourself in order to have them right and you're at the mercy of your thoughts and feelings because they're all buried down there they don't really go away right they just sort of simmer below the surface. Exactly. Find ways to express themselves at inopportune times. Whereas a secure person is more able um, to express themselves and better separate their internal feelings and thoughts with what's happening in reality. Yeah, that makes sense. It's good right. to step back every now and then. Yeah. See the big picture. Yeah, it's, it's like a mindful thing as mm -hmm. well. Um, so... The main point is, if we can't reflect and distinguish the way we think and feel from actual reality, then navigating life will be full of self-sabotage and misunderstandings. And if we can't question our eternal thoughts and feelings and what is actually happening outside of us, then we can't actually accurately interpret our experiences. So, about a hundred years ago, our good friend Sigmund Freud, no. the founder of psychoanalysis, theorized that we have ego defenses, which, depending on how primitive or mature they are, they can vastly alter our perception of reality in order to protect ourselves from anxiety or other forms of mental pain. Also, we unconsciously interpret things reactively and try to find patterns in terms of what we perceive, which may or may not be real. You know those pictures they have, like, um, they have the one of the cup, it's like black and white. There's a cup, but if you look a certain way, it's two people. Yeah, like the vase. In yeah, the middle, yeah. So this is like a just uh, gestalt kind of concept, and it it kind of highlights our subjectivity and how one people can see, one person can see one thing one way, another may see something another way, and it depends on how our mind. Yeah, or like the image of it. like two people staring at a number on the ground. One of them says it's a six. The other person says it's a nine. Where, yeah, from their perspective, they're actually both right. Mm-hmm. But is that really the truth? Mm-hmm. Like, would the truth not be like, well, it's just this series of lines <laughs> that if you look at it this way, is this way, and if you look at it the other way, it's the opposite. It may be relative to their experience and their perspective from yeah. where they're... So two things can be true at the same time. I think, yeah, I and think... this is something we, I think, as a <laughs> culture, we have a tough time holding. Yeah, we have lost a little bit of that. We're holding these uh, two truths that could both be simultaneously correct, often when they're presented as being contradictory, when in many cases they are not. Yeah, and the nature you know, of paradox. Yeah, so this, well. like, it was, I remember when I was doing my own recording, my second album was called Paradox or Perspective, and it was a picture of uh, like a triangle and then an equal sign and then a rectangle. Mm. Where it's sort of a paradox, right? Because you can't have a triangle equal a rectangle, but it's like, well, what if it's a 3D design where one of them is looking at it from the top and the other is looking at it from the side mm, okay then right. it, then they that it, it does make sense right so is it is it a paradox or is it just a matter of perspective right. I, haven't, I haven't thought about that in a long time that's uh yeah that was back in like <laughs> back when i was in school we did uh, did that album yeah that's a great question 
Yeah, and I, sure. it was just one of the things I was kind of thinking about at the time because when I guess I, this would have been when I was in first year, uh, and I think there was a lot of times where you're presented with a lot of contradictory information that you have to make sense of. It's like, well, wait a second. Last year, everything was you know so ham-fistedly straightforward and bored me to death, but now I actually have to think. Yeah, you have to integrate the new information, and... Yeah, and it's often not the uh, the easiest thing to do. But no. you can kind of learn that it's it's okay to hold two ideas and think about the contradiction, because life is kind of full of these contradictions sometimes. And Yeah, and there's so much extremism mm. in our society, right? Well, one of the Very ways you're trying to... Yeah, you're trying to white. deal with the uncertainty by saying, well, yeah, it could be both, but it's way easier to think about it if I just sit on one side of the debate and completely ignore the other side. Because then I feel like I'm on a team, I'm part of something with a bunch of people I agree with. Yeah, but that get, encourages you, the tribalism, a little bit, like yeah. in the righteous mind. And Well, I think, I think you were saying before with social media, how it affects this so severely, because you can literally uh, just put yourself in an echo chamber with just following things that you already agree yeah. with and never... And it's a lot... It makes the experience a lot, a lot more enjoyable. A lot more comfortable. Have, <laughs> yeah, because you don't have to fucking sit there and argue with everything you see on there. And, yeah. and I can see how that would be pretty stressful. Yeah. And, Much less anger-inducing. <laughs> and yeah, you know, a lot, of, a lot of phones nowadays, they have the ability to, to limit your app time to a certain number of hours or minutes per day. And mm-hmm. it might, might be worth to do that just for your own mental hygiene. Like, give yourself an hour of social media a day. Turn it off on the weekends. Maybe go completely dry for the month of August like Dave Rubin does. Yeah, you know exactly. And take take just take a break from it because honestly, keeping up with the news cycle and all the nonsense that goes on, it's uh, it's exhausting. Yeah, ex- and stressful. Yeah, I would say yeah. Um, so I think what we want to aim for is called the reflective slash mentalizing stance, which enables one to recognize that internal reality is separate from, but also related to external reality. This allows us to reflect on the ways our thoughts, feelings, and fantasies both affect and are affected by what actually happens to us. In this mode, our subjective experience is felt to have interpretive depth, and because we can grasp the difference between events and our responses to them, we can enjoy more eternal freedom. So it's like opening like a two-way street in terms of the way internal and external reality are communicating yeah and sort of thinking about why it is you think or feel about certain yeah the way you do yeah it's like well i really hate emus they're big stupid birds they don't serve any purpose and every time i see one it tries to kill me Mm -hmm. that probably has Mm -hmm. something to do with why i don't like them yeah your survival oh by survival yeah you know just it's a silly (laughs) example but you know what i mean yeah if if you if you've always experienced uh this bird to treat you in a certain way you're probably going to learn to react to it in a certain way Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that's just sort of based on experience, so that the external world does have that impact on mm-hmm. our internal understanding, which I, which I don't even think sounds like a very controversial statement. It's like obviously that's what life experience is, in a nutshell, right? Right, right. right. Um... But I suppose if you don't have a lot of that, <laughs> and, and you have a lot of other people's opinions filling your mind, you can feel like you know a lot of things because a lot of other people believe it very strongly. Mm-hmm. But if your own life experience doesn't reflect it, it's it's kind of hollow in a sense, right? Yeah, and if we get triggered, we're going to put into like a hyper-aroused state, which won't really allow us to really think clearly mm-hmm. about things, right? And I think holding strong opinions about certain things kind of gets us to a point where we can be triggered by that kind of disagreement, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Like if you've been very vitriolic about a certain topic, mm-hmm. it's very difficult to then go back on that and be like, yeah, maybe I was a little bit overly zealous on that. Yeah. And I was actually completely wrong. 
you know, it's, yeah. it's not a very easy thing for the ego to swallow sometimes. So the best way to avoid that is to maybe just not be a huge zealot about all your opinions. Right, you know, right. You can have your beliefs, but it's okay if other people have theirs too. You know, yeah. Always tr- believe that the person you're speaking to knows something that you do not. Yep, a key Peterson yep, uh, rule, whatever. I want to say, <laughs> like I want to say nine because uh, maybe it is. Whichever, yeah. Um, so I wanted to share a personal experience. Um, in regards to work, I would say the many corrupt corporations of our time and workplaces don't always value the truth or an employee's perspective when it comes to harassment and other forms of abuse experienced between coworkers themselves and their managers. So. This last summer, I left my job because a highly narcissistic bullying coworker would not stop arguing with me, rarely listened or empathized with my side of the story, and aggressively pushed me around with his words like an emotional punching bag, which I straight up said to him. My company failed to uphold any standards of workplace conduct and dismissed my harassment claims while basically ignoring the substantial evidence I provided. This unacknowledgement of the psychological truth of the situation made me feel unseen and unheard in a profoundly painful way that induced a great deal of rage. I decided I was not going to tolerate the outright dishonesty, coercion, lack of protection, and lies. I have found that aligning myself with truth, morality, and natural law has had intense consequences on my life because it's made me take a stand, essentially. Mm -hmm. Um, And... This has been very difficult to handle at first, but has ultimately been very liberating in the long run. And this whole experience has been a blessing in disguise overall, thankfully. Yeah, well, I mean, it's one of these things you get to kind of pick your suffering, right? You either have to suffer with the uncertainty of quitting your job, or you have to pick the suffering of dealing with the asshole, right? Yeah, yeah, in which nothing will be changed. Which which you did for a while, but eventually it got to the point where you're like, no, this isn't working anymore, i gotta got to get a change, so... Yeah, and I didn't really realize how how much it was affecting me mentally until until I uh, teased it out more with my therapist, basically, and we figured out, like, it was affecting my sleep and anxiety and depression. And that'll all feed back into it, too, right? It makes it worse. Yeah, and you make yourself second guess yourself because you're not really sure what's happening well you're also allowing yourself to be treated like shit so why would you trust yourself yeah and you know that and that's what makes you feel like shit right yeah 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 exactly and i think that you lose some self-respect too until you stand up for yourself properly right yeah and and then once you do you can kind of say okay yeah at least now i know i'm somebody worth standing up for because even an asshole like me would stand up for me and it, if and, that makes any sense. <laughs> <laughs> and that's hard. Like, it doesn't happen overnight. But uh, let's say that standing up for yourself is a great natural antidepressant. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Well, think about what standing up mm-hmm. for yourself would be as an antidepressant. I mean, you stand up straight with your shoulders back. That's bloody rule number one. I think that's going to help some yeah. serotonin. Uh, <laughs> right. It's a, the same thing flowing. with because the, the body will feed back into itself, right? Like yeah. they, they did those experiments where they, they'll tell you a joke to a control group and then they'll tell the same joke to a bunch of people that have a pencil in their mouth because it forces them to make a smile with their face to hold the pencil there and that feeds back into their mind and there was a significant difference in how they rated the quality of the joke mm-hmm. and they could show mm-hmm. this repeatedly over and over and over again it's a very reliable and valid measure of what's going on and the idea is that if if you can hold, make people hold the pencil in their teeth 
they have yeah. to smile, and if they hold it in their lips, they have to make like a pursed face to mm-hmm. hold it in their lips. Mm-hmm. And those ones show a less favorable one than the control group. Hmm. So the control group sits right in the middle if there's no effect, yeah. but if you alter the way the mouth is shaped when people yeah. hear a joke, it was one of the most bizarre findings I ever heard of. It's really interesting. Right? Because it, it's all of a sudden saying, oh, okay, so what we're doing with our bodies actually affects our minds. It's like, well, I guess on the surface that doesn't sound all that unintuitive. Like, yeah, mm-hmm. obviously that makes sense, but it, here's the mechanism by which that happens, right? Because mm-hmm. I guess back in the day, in order to successfully navigate dominance hierarchies, you'd have to have certain body language to communicate your place in it. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so it became very, very ingrained. I mean, you see bloody lobsters do it, and they're older than trees. <laughs> That's probably why lifting weights and yeah, yeah doing other things like that yeah because and, you take up more space you become physically larger you can hold yourself up taller mm-hmm, more comfortably mm-hmm, you and can see a difference yeah and, and you take up more space when you move mm-hmm. around right so it's uh i mean compared to say holding your arms in front of yourself yeah and trying to take up as little amount of space as possible it's like you walk around like that for a while you're gonna start to feel like shit yeah exactly and it's and also it's funny because um, they also recommend, like, just as a kind of experiment, like, if you're depressed, to just smile in front of the mirror for, like, a few seconds, you know, and just try that repetedly. And even though it sounds really strange and, like, kind of hokey, oh, it yeah. does actually yeah. work to some extent. And um, Based on that same mechanism, no doubt. Yeah, because um, maybe, because in a way you're showing yourself that you like yourself and... <laughs> That has a powerful kind of unconscious, a sort of a primitive uh, mechanism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. So. Now, speaking of primitive mechanisms, let's move onwards to the malfeasance of the mainstream media. <laughs> so yes, um, the media and um, the foundation of advertising itself is inherently founded on lies, fabrication, and the misuses of psychoanalysis, based on the false promises of happiness, love sexual attraction, which are subconsciously embedded within print, radio, television, and the internet. And if you're interested in learning more about how media psychologically manipulates us almost unconsciously, I'd highly recommend watching Century of the Self. So I learned in high school that in print media, they have, um, they have like pictures of models, right? And mm-hmm. some of them will have sex written in their forehead. Hmm. But you have to, like, you really have to, like, look for it, but it's there. And there's also other certain implicit messages as well. There's a lot of phallic imagery, which isn't an accident. So and... when we're talking about uh, like advertising in general, I presume this isn't, like, advertising for everything? You know what I no, mean? No, not necessarily. But, I mean, I think for things like... Uh, luxury items or distractions things like you know cars or toys or things like that they'll they always do that thing where they'll put the the beautiful young woman on the hood of the car (laughs) and then all the guys at the car show ask hey do you come with the car like she's never heard that before at every single car show i'm sure yeah yeah or in the center of the self they show some woman in the 1950s she's like inside a car and she's like oh it's so big (laughs) (laughs) so like stuff like that like you kind of like laugh at but kind of shrug off so but... the thinking would be is the guy reading the car be like oh that would make me th- think i'm really big okay. yeah 
I should yeah. buy that car, and then I can be really big. <laughs> and attract more women. And attract women. more women. <laughs> and internet money. <laughs> yeah, I, I can see how uh, how that would work. And, I mean, I, I know this this is sort of brought up as a as a critique of capitalism, where they, they use the term consumerism, where it's this sort of never-ending treadmill of, you know, work a meaningless job to buy a bunch of things to help you escape from reality just to go back and work more. And I, I kind of see where that critique has some validity to it, but I don't think consumerism necessarily has anything to do with capitalism. As, like, a moral system, it's like, okay, well, I mean, people would still have those same instincts under any other system. It's just Mm -hmm. capitalism is the only one that would let them get it. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, I can see that the constant consuming and regurgitating and all that, it is sort of a shallow existence, but I don't really see it as a a serious critique of voluntarism or free markets in any real way. It's more of a personal responsibility problem, right? Well, that's what I was going to say. It's uh, our personal responsibility to become more media literate and to make the choice, uh, maybe more of a conscious choice of what we... Yeah, generate some actual meaning in your life rather than Mm -hmm. just trying to buy things to generate it for you. Mm-hmm, because that'll just be a never-ending cycle. A never-ending cycle, cycle. And yeah. And you'll never be happy. Yeah, yeah and fair main. enough. I don't think anybody will really have a, have a problem with that, right? But uh, we do... There is a such thing as an addiction to money and buying things, and I know I have that <laughs> to a certain extent. I yeah, mean, I think everybody does to a certain right, extent. Some right. be, it's more of like a... Some people have it to a degree where they stop paying their bills because they want to get things on... Kijiji or Amazon or something like yeah. that. There's, there's that, but then there's also just the, you know, the occasional frivolous purchase that I'm sure we're all guilty of. Right, right. And maybe that might not necessarily be something to be guilty of. I think it's just how far it's taken and how much it may affect your finances and family. Yeah, and, and definitely advertisers couldn't just take advantage of that and say, hey, if you want to have the, the meaningful, happy life you've always wanted, you know, take this pill or <laughs> yeah. buy this car, or, you know, buy yeah. this product. But it's a two-way streak, again. Like, what we said with, like, the reflective stance is the advertisers, they're going to transmit their messages, and it's up to us whether we want to respond or ignore it. Yeah, so if if you find yourself particularly compelled by an advertisement, not so much because of what the, you know, the value that product could bring into your life, but, you know, maybe the status it could give you or the feelings it could give you or the... Uh, yeah, it just or it just gives you a knee jerk reaction to, to buy, buy it. Yeah, so if, <laughs> if you get that, that might be a great opportunity to take that reflective stance and figure, hey, what is it about this product that makes me feel like I'm lacking something in my life? Because I mean, you you didn't really feel the desire or the lack in your life before you saw the commercial, right? It was just after you saw it, you're like, oh man, yeah, I really could use that hike to a mountaintop to really find myself, man. I should, you know, I didn't think about it until I saw that commercial, but you know, that was really informative. Like, no, you're you're probably just getting taken for a ride exactly and what yeah. was that other phrase as well like if you don't see the product in front of you it's probably because you're the product you know so we get mm. free access to things like google and facebook and social media but a lot of times all that's doing is just selling our data to advertisers right you right know? so like if it's not something like if you're using it for free it's probably because you are being monetized in some way yeah that's that's the only very way important free things can work fundamentally yeah, right yeah yeah it's got to come from somewhere because there ain't no free lunch tim there's got to be some sort of catch, usually, right? <laughs> That's right. And speaking of always having a catch, politicians. They practically right. make lying a profession, along with shadow projection and blaming and scapegoating, rather than attending to and solving the major problems of our society. And I mean, it makes perfect sense if you look at the incentive structure, right? Who, what, what politician is going to want to get up there and be like, hey, maybe we should have a serious discussion about the implications of the Indian Act. 
Or, and then the next guy's going to come up. He's like, yeah, well, what I'm going to do is just pledge $10 million to these uh, these poor First Nations people. And then the next politician is like, oh, yeah, I pledge $20 million. <laughs> Ooh, crowd goes wild, right? It's like, this is the guy that really takes the issue seriously. It's like, the guy didn't even read the like the press brief. The guy just like, here's you know a bunch of your money yeah, that just... I'm going to bribe you with so that you can feel good yeah. about it. And it, unfortunately now, it's like, even what you're paying in taxes doesn't even cover any of that spending. It's just paying the interest. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, if your taxes paid for your social services, the governments wouldn't run deficits. They wouldn't have to because it would all be paid for by your taxes, but it isn't, right? And what's the point of the Indian Act, isn't it? Like this is like a really really old piece of legislation, but it's supposed to like if you look at how they're being like how things are on the reserves, like it's not a pretty situation. So I've heard, but yeah. I mean a lot of the lies come down to oh well this is you know even though this is a government created problem, what they need is more government and more money and more money. <laughs> it's like well they've been doing that for generations and it isn't making anything better. Yeah, you know so I mean? it's not really attending to the roots. No, no, it isn't. But again, it's uh, I, I think they got a really really raw deal initially and i think it was made hmm. worse by this this sort of turning them all into wards of the state basically mm-hmm. it's like well you know you can have mm-hmm. your land and we'll give you this little plot that you can put trailers on and build substandard houses that have no insulation and no running water you know it's mm-hmm. kind of and it's like oh, okay and we'll just keep giving you money but i think what it's causing is just a state of dependency that prevents them from breaking out of that hmm. they, they were doing just fine i guess before we showed up I mean, yeah, there's wars and all that kind of stuff that they have, just like everybody else, but mm-hmm. I don't think government money made it better. I think it made mm. it worse. Hmm. Right? But what politician is going to want to say that? They're going to yeah. go, oh, well, you're just a racist and hate Indians. Oh, they're called First Nations people. Oh, crap, sorry. You hate First Nations people. It's like, no, I don't, I don't hate anybody. But obviously throwing money at this problem is not fixing it, and in this fact is making it worse in several cases. Like, mm-hmm. And it's like with, like, health care. Like... Mm-hmm. Why not make just a simple goal? How are we going to, in a way, incentivize, but also cut down the amount of people getting sick? And how, maybe how could we have like a long-term 30, 50-year plan Mm -hmm. to implement that might um, prevent sickness? Well, if people know their healthcare is being paid for by the state, they have no incentive to stay healthy. Because what do they care? It's not going to cost them anything. But if you were responsible for yourself and you, you had to pay for it down the line... You would know. You would know, right? It's like, well, I could get my car an oil change, but, well, who cares? The government's just going to give me a new car in a year anyway. You never, mm-hmm. you never maintain anything, right? It's, it's the same thing. You've got to look at where the incentives are, right? Mm-hmm. We, we are a resource-hungry species, and we like to conserve what we get. Mm-hmm. So if all of a sudden something is provided to us, we don't really think about getting it for ourselves anymore. Which is nice, but... You know, that can go on for only so long before we're so far removed from what got us there in the first place that mm. one little problem with that system, the whole thing comes down and we have no capacity to rebuild it. Right. You know and what I mean? And it would be great to <laughs> prevent that. Yeah, yeah, that would be sort of what we're trying to prevent here, right? I mean, it's here's the problem. It's either going to be a crash landing or a soft landing. You know, the system as mm. it is, I, I just I don't see it being able to continue. Mm-hmm. And that comes with putting a finger on things and actually being able to speak the truth about it yeah we could be wrong but in proving us wrong you'd have to figure out why we're wrong yeah and then you might actually see the problem for what it is rather than just saying oh well you're, you're just wrong because i don't believe you and at least trying to speak the truth could start up that process of investigation right yeah at least figure out what you're wrong about that, that, that's that'd be a good place to start that's a right? good way to you know narrow it down right yeah. 
so um lastly we experience lies at home within our families we're taught to hide or not talk about certain things that may be embarrassing painful or upsetting however trauma and abuse are generally promoted through dishonesty because the victim will have to accept a false narrative and blame themselves to gain some control for something parents should be responsible for Plus, if we aren't taught to be honest and face ourselves and our problems at home, then our parents have failed us in a major way. In other words, if we can't own up to things and take self-responsibility, then we will remain lost, depressed, angry, and suffer needlessly. Yeah, and probably depend on somebody else or the state to cover a lot of these issues if you don't do it yourself. That's... You know, <laughs> probably not the it's not ideal. best strategy, right? Yeah, so I would argue the truth is that which is real. So facts that we can clearly observe and acknowledge, which is also in line with objectivity. But I would also argue there are psychological or more abstract truths, which manifest on the physical and mental plane. So we can sense, feel, and figure out what actions are morally right and wrong by thoughtful, thoughtfully considering the motives and consequences of actions observed in physical reality what they mean. The truth is also that which has happened as an inaccurate appraisal of the past. And lastly, truth is that which is right and correct, such as upholding the non-aggression principle while maintaining self-defense to defend against manipulators, abusers, tyrants, and such, and any other kind of bastard who tries to physically or psychologically dominate any other individual. It's like, yeah, I think, I think we probably all agree on the non-aggression principle. It seems... You know, I'm not sure there's anyone out there advocating for the aggression principle. It's like the, one must initiate the use of force against everybody else in order to be moral. It's like that doesn't really sound like a not explicitly, no, but it's it like, comes down to their actions. Yeah, if you right? want to be assaulted, it's not assault. Therefore, it kind of loses all meaning when you use that word in that context. You know, if you want to have your lawnmower taken from the end of your driveway, it's not theft, even though someone takes your property. Hmm. You can't want to be stolen from; otherwise, the concept of theft disappears as a category. Yeah, I mean, any sane person <laughs> wouldn't want theft happening or harm. Exactly, so we can all be moral if we just don't steal from each other. Yeah, that, that's something that would happen all the time, but if you want to say theft is a moral principle, then you'd have to steal from everybody all the time in order to be moral. And if you want to be stolen from, not theft. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, one of the things that we wanted to uh, go over here was the difference between uh, deontology and teleology. So this is basically... Uh, first principles versus, I guess, the ends justify the means or something like this. And mm -hmm. this is one of the things I run into a lot in conversations where I'm trying to speak from a perspective of a principle. Like, here's a principle that we have to apply in all circumstances. That violates the principle, therefore it's immoral. Mm -hmm. And the mm -hmm. person I'm talking to will be coming from a teleological perspective where they're saying, well, based on the consequences, the consequences are good, therefore it has to be moral. Right? It's like, well, not necessarily, right? Depends how you arrive yeah, it's like if you want to, if you want to, you know, give a bunch of money to an orphanage. Well, that sounds pretty nice and moral, but it's like, okay, well, you have to go rob a bank to do it. Like, <laughs> like I don't, I don't really like. Well, yeah, but now the orphanage has all this money. It's like, yeah, but you have to rob a bank. That doesn't make it moral, right? You can't yeah. have an ends justify the means because then nothing is moral, really, as long mm -hmm. as you can sort of like abstract some subjective preference of the outcome. Yeah, yeah no, then then it's moral. It's like, oh, okay, well. You know, well, I stole this car. It's like, well, that sounds immoral. It's like, well, no, because now I have a car. So it's, it's good. <laughs> it's like, and that's that's a subjective morality thing yeah, in a way, right? a little bit. It's moral for me to be able to have a car because a car is a human right. So 
<laughs> if I steal it from somebody, then it's not immoral because now I have a car and that's preferable to me not having a car. So, and I'm doing better. And now I'm doing better, so everything everything's all hunky Yeah, yeah, yeah. So in moral philosophy, deontolo- deontological ethics or deontology from uh, the Greek deon, obligation or duty, is that an, it's a normative ethical theory that the morality of an action should be based on whether that action is itself right or wrong under a series of rules rather than based on the consequences of the action. And teleology, or uh, finality, is a reason or explanation for something as a function of its end, purpose, or goal. It's derived from two Greek words, telos, which is like an end, goal, or purpose, and logos, which is a reason or explanation. So, uh, just to go into deontology a little bit here. So, depending on the system of deontological ethics under consideration, a moral obligation may arise from an external or internal source, such as a set of rules inherent to the universe, so this would be like natural law, Mm -hmm. uh, religious law, or a set of personal or cultural values, uh, any of which may be in conflict with your personal desires. Now, uh, Immanuel Kant talks a little bit about this with his categorical imperative, uh, so a system of ethics has to be universal. And this is something that I think makes a lot of sense, because if it isn't universal, it's basically just a subjective preference. And then you're not really talking about morality at all. Mm-hmm. So the highest good must be both good in itself and good without qualification. Something is good in itself when it is intrinsically good, and good without qualification when the addition of that thing never makes a situation ethically worse. So there seems like there's a bit to unpack there. So the three significant formulations of the categorical imperative are act only in accordance with that maxim by which you may also will that it would be a universal law, which is just a really old Englishy way of saying that it should be a universal principle. Right, <laughs> you, right. All people, all circumstances, no exceptions. Uh, act in such a way that you would always treat humanity, whether in your own person or in a person of any other, Never simply as a means, but always at the same time as an end. So people are an end in themselves. People are not simply a means to an end. Hmm. Sounds fine to me. Uh, And finally, every rational being must so act as if he were thought his maxim always a legislating member of a universal kingdom of ends. So let me do that one one more time because that seems like a little bit more to unpack here. So every rational being must so act as if he were, through his maxim, always a legislating member in a universal kingdom of ends so i think that kind of ties back into the first one so basically act in such a way that if everybody else were to act that way things would still be good mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right so it's like if you don't if you're going to steal you got to also think well if everybody stole that would make things worse mm-hmm, right right yeah, this seems like one of those kind of laws they they teach you as a small child you know it's like well you wouldn't like it if johnny did that to you it's like oh yeah i guess i wouldn't I guess i won't do that anymore it's like, okay, yeah. So practice it when you're a kid. Uh, there's a couple of other ones here. The divine command theory. So it's a form of deontology because according to it, the rightness of any action depends upon that action being performed because it is a duty, not because of any good consequences that arise from that action. So if it's your duty to do it, it's a sort of good in and of itself. So it implies a decent amount of obedience. I think so, yeah. And if, and if you're going to be... It depends on what you'd be obedient to. Like, if you want to be obedient to natural law and mm-hmm. reason and evidence and logic, yeah, you're probably going to be fine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but if you want to be, uh, have a duty or an obligation to lies, then mm-hmm. you're probably going to run into a wall eventually because, you know, reality doesn't really take any prisoners, in a sense. Right. It, it just, snaps back. <laughs> it snaps back uh, quite readily. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So uh, the other one here, teleology. So uh, this one was that one that we kind of talked about as being an ends justify the means kind of philosophy. Now, mm -hmm. I grant that's probably an oversimplification of what mm -hmm. this really is. That's just how it, it came across to me. Mm -hmm. Maybe just because it's contrasted with deontology as being a principle-based thing. So, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. so we can yeah look a bit more. Dive into it here. So with teleology, because human cognition and learning often rely on the narrative structure of stories with actors, goals, and proximal rather than distal causation, some minimal level of teleology might be recognized as useful or at least tolerable for practical purposes even by people who reject its cosmologic accuracy yeah so maybe uh in certain circumstances you could say like yeah maybe teleology works at some level of analysis maybe mm -hmm. it's just a slightly less refined kind of philosophy but let's continue and see what they say here so uh, to give a physical description of Socrates's body is to say that Socrates is sitting, uh, but it does not give us any idea of why uh, he might be sitting in the first place. So to say why he was sitting and not sitting, instead of sitting, I suppose, we'd have to explain what it is about his sitting that is good. For all things brought about, i.e. the all products of actions, are brought about because some actors saw some good in them. Thus, to give an explanation of something is to determine what about it is good. Its goodness is the actual cause, its purpose, telos, or I guess reason for being. It's raison d'etre, so to speak. So, so it's kind of like goodness for the sake of goodness yeah, type so, of thing? Yeah, so basically to describe anything. Like if you wanted to describe sitting in that chair, part of that description would have to include why it is better to sit in that chair than to stand beside it. It's easier on my back and legs. <laughs> yeah. It allows us to sort of stay in the same spot yeah. for an extended period of time comfortably. Relax a bit, yeah. And that would be to describe, like, the telos of a chair or something like that. Yeah. It's so it's like, yeah, I can kind of understand that. It's like, and, you know, maybe there's a part of this that's, that's important because you want to sort of uh, unpack the reasons for a lot of things like the narrative and why people are protesting about things, and what it is about that that's actually good. What is the end goal yeah. they're actually trying to reach? Because then you can accurately judge it and understand it, right? Yeah, like if I you see... go to the origins of something, let's say. Like you see, like I was the last few weeks, they've had a lot of these climate protests. Oh, yeah. And when you really look at, you know, if you ask them on the surface what it's about, it's like, oh, well, you know, we just want to raise awareness about the environment. It's like, who exactly is unaware of the environment? Are there people out there just wandering through clouds, not realizing there's air and water and land? And What exactly yeah. does that even mean, aware of the environment? You can't not be aware of the environment. It's been trying to kill us for millions of years. And we've only just now begun to get a handle on it. And now you're saying we've gone too far and we're going to burn the place to the ground. Yeah, and the problem with little Greta's how dare you speech oh, is yeah, yeah. it's all emotional appeal and has no scientific fact or evidence. You have stolen it. my childhood. It's like, how you fuck <laughs> You see, the, you see those those memes they're putting up now. Yeah. It's like, like she's like, "How dare you steal my childhood?" And then there'll be some picture of like a child soldier in Africa. He's like, "Yeah, cool story, bro." Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Oh, that sounds so bad. The picture of her like spreading butter on toast on this train. It's like, oh, your childhood was stolen, eh? Well, then they show those all these different pictures of children in these horrible circumstances across the world, and this is the whole irony of it too, right? They're like, "Well, you know, we want to make sure that those people can survive." It's like, well, then you'd probably want to give them access to diesel. <laughs> I'm just saying a tractor can do the work of 100 people mm. and can feed an entire village. Mm. And you're saying, well, we don't want them to pollute the uh, environment with this, this CO2 that you know plants use for food to make food for people. Right. It's all ass backwards, but it's just another 
in a long line of these environmentally catastrophic predictions that have been going back since like the 60s and 70s where they were worried about the next ice age coming about mm-hmm. the old leonard mm-hmm. nimoy documentary from like 1972 worried about how we're all gonna freeze like people right. are so scared about the earth going up in temperature by a couple of degrees like if it was two degrees hotter in the summer do you think you'd even notice <laughs> probably not right but it's like mm. I, th- I don't think people realize how much worse cooling is than warming in that sense like if all of a sudden we were to experience an ice age we'd have a massive die-off of the population mm. if things got a few degrees warmer we our air conditioners would work a little harder and we'd burn more fuel mm-hmm. and get and get uh we would survive more carbon right and when you try to engage these people in this argument about climate change it's like banging your head against the wall sometimes right because they're so convinced the science is settled even though it's been around for like a few decades you know science doesn't get settled like that and oh i guess if it is would you guys all be okay with us just completely defunding it because what, mm. what are we researching now if the science is settled so hmm. it's like well the science is settled on the one hand but we also need to spend billions of dollars a year researching it it's like well what researching what it's settled yeah, and it's like, why does this keep going? Why, why do we have to keep throwing the same amount of money at climate change as we throw at online shopping? Which is about mm. one and a half trillion dollars a year. Whoa. Globally. Wow. It's a lot of money to, you know, to throw at a settled science. Mm-hmm. Right? And people mm-hmm. are like, oh, well, you know, 97% of all these scientists agree. It's like, how do you think they came to that conclusion? Have you ever read the paper? Do you know? Oh, no, I just, I just saw it on the news. And if 97% of them agree with it, it must be true. Like, you know, the... Four out of five dentists believe you should brush with whatever that toothpaste is. Because the news always tells the truth. Because the news always tells the truth. (laughs) Listen, I'll give you guys a tip. If you guys are ever in a debate with one of these climate alarmists, ask them two questions. The first question is, what did they agree on? And the second question is, how did they come to that conclusion? Mm -hmm. And they won't be able to tell you. They won't have a clue that this was a study concocted by, what was it, Dr. Cook from the University of East Anglia or some shit? Well, that's the thing, finding the source of They took like 12,000 climate scientists and asked them the question, do you think the Earth is warming, and do you think man has anything to do with it? They Mm. Basically, everyone that said no, they just write that out of the study. They took about 800 responses out of that 12,000 that basically agreed with them, and then used that as the 97% number. But people are like, oh, that's all the scientists. It's like, no, it's one of the biggest scams ever been perpetrated on science yeah they manipulate the data and the ipcc has got caught manipulating the data where oh well you know they got to go back because with new studies they find more accurate means of adjusting the temperatures it's like well why then are all the adjustments in one direction (laughs) why is it that they never adjust them back the other way why is it always making it go away when it's inconvenient or making more of it when it is convenient and Mm -hmm. you you Mm -hmm. know i think a lot of it's just follow the money Mm-hmm. Now, all of this is not to say that we're not stewards of this planet and we have a responsibility to keep it clean, but I think that's a personal thing. I mean, how many of these people complaining about it have ever gone out to their local park and picked up trash? Mm-hmm. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like, it, it's like probably not a single one of them because it's it's just not part yeah. of the, the way they think. And if you see the the environmental, I wouldn't, I don't really want to say devastation that's left after these climate protests, but all their signs, their confetti, it's just left everywhere. They make right, a huge right, mess. Right. Yeah, yeah. They, they make... avoided their first principles. Yeah, obviously. <laughs> so it's like, okay, so this is the mess you're going to leave in your environment. It's like, oh, we, we made that mess ironically uh, <laughs> to show how bad we are to the environment. It's like, oh, okay, so you're going to come and lecture all of us, make us all late for work, and leave a huge mess to lecture us about how we're irresponsible. Okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah. That's real effective. Uh, and that's exactly. why I've just run out of, run out of patience arguing with these people because they're so certain of it, but they, 
they're holding an opinion about something they know nothing about. And they can't even be bothered to do even the most surface level research. Or see past themselves. Or see past, yeah, themselves and their own opinions. So it's uh, right. it's really sad. Uh, so next up, we got maybe one of the driving factors behind this, which mm-hmm. is going to be postmodernism. So do you want to go into a little bit about what that is? Right. So this is essentially like a consciousness and movement that has arisen in like starting in like the late 1800s 1900s and it has a lot of uh questionable let's say axioms and claims and so like what they try to do is they're really trying to take a look at the power structures within society and they're trying to equalize everything and with that they they see like scientists and other authorities as very suspicious and their um their data they qu- they basically question the notion of objective truth because it's oppressive <laughs> yeah and now this is a subject we could de- um we could uh, dedicate a whole episode to to really like explain but dig into postmodernism a little bit oh, yeah uh... even though yeah but it's it's basically one of the sources for all this focus on subjective morality and the notions of oppression um, taken to an extreme. And, and it basically, they ask, and it makes, it makes us ask, like, who gets to determine what is true? And they're, they're questioning some of the most basic um, foundational truths of Western civilization. Yeah, and I seem I find it to be in a, a kind of like pseudo intellectual navel gazing. Hmm. It's like you ask a really like stupid question, and it's supposed to sound really profound, but it's really just kind of ridiculous. Like one of the articles uh, I wanted to bring up here was an article on the Daily Wire that talks a little bit about these Seattle public schools talking about uh, or bringing a lot of this postmodernism into the math classroom, where they're trying to inject a lot of that neo Marxist oppression narrative into it and here are some of the questions that the uh right a lengthy list of essential questions (laughs) that this is supposed to include that they really want to bring into the classroom so who holds power in a mathematical classroom is there a place for power and authority in the math classroom who gets to say if an answer is right who is smart who is not smart can you recognize and name oppressive mathematical practices in your experience (laughs) jeez Why and how does data-driven processes prevent liberation? Good God. How is math manipulated to allow inequality and oppression to persist? Holy shit. <laughs> I'm sorry, I couldn't even get through that without laughing because this is, this is insane. This is like you're trying to brand an ideology onto something that has no capacity for ideology. It's, yeah. it's numbers. It's... Who gets to determine if an answer is right? The math gets to determine if the math is right. Because it either works or it doesn't. It's neutral. Yeah. It's completely amoral. Yeah. Right? It's yeah. There are no structural oppressive practices in a math classroom because everyone gets to do the same math. It's not like, yeah. oh, okay, so little Sally, you get to do the black math, and little Jimmy, you get the white math, and little, a little Ling Ping in the back, you get the Asian math. Like, there's just math. Yeah. Right, so this idea that there can be oppressive mathematical practices in the math classroom—it's it's insane. Yeah, they need they need a teacher to give the knowledge and explain things. So there has to be a power dynamic, exactly, not to oppress people but to teach them something. In right? in every mentor relationship, 
there yeah. is a power imbalance. But it's like, how would you not have a power imbalance? Are the students going to instruct each other in math? Well, then all of a sudden, the students who are smarter, according to this postmodern nonsense, are going to be oppressing the less smart students. And it's like, okay, this, this is a completely unworkable system. So I think postmodernism does introduce a lot of monkey wrenches into the mm-hmm. pursuit for truth because it's a very easy way of distracting yourself. Like, say you're, you're working your way towards the truth and it's like, oh, wait a second, who gets to determine, you know, the structures of inequality that might affect, you know, the right answer? Then you just go off on this huge tangent and you might never find your way back. Yeah, and the other thing is, is that the, with postmodernism, they, they present that anything can be interpreted an infinite amount of ways. And while this may be true, it doesn't mean that all interpretations are made equal. There may be one interpretation that's the most valuable and, and is likely to stick and provable. If everything be interpreted that many ways, you would never get anything done. Right. So right. It's, it's almost just a way of sort of like, oh, okay, are we, are we going to go walk over towards the truth? Well, I kind of want to sit on this bench. It's just very kinda... non-progressive, even though they try to mask through progressivism. Yeah, well, I think right? I think a lot of them, because it's it's so silly, progressivism just gets wrapped up in it quite easily because intersectionality is nonsense, basically. Because mm-hmm. everybody, mm-hmm. the only group that you're a part of by yourself is just the individual. Because you can be subdivided mm-hmm. into every other possible category, and then trying to yeah. have some sort of abstract group hierarchy, it's a it's a complete waste of time. And they try to make that your identity rather rather than your individualism, yeah. right? They try to identify you through your race and color and yeah, so it's whatever like, exterior kind of things that do exist, but they're not the most important things, no, are they? No, but then you'll get people that are, they'll start sentences like, well, speaking as a blank, right. and then they'll say something, and it's like, well, what does your identity have to do? Oh, it has everything to do with it. It's like, well, mm. no, it has nothing to do with it. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. It's almost like people want to become these sort of unique special snowflakes by making themselves completely ununique and just part of the herd. That's what that mm-hmm. whole NPC meme is about. Right. Orange man bad. <laughs> it's like the dangers of extreme collectivism. Yeah. I would say. Yeah. I mean, collectivism and group level, uh, like in. Group cohesion and yeah, but I mean specifically, values. like you know how you can have evolutionary pressures at the individual level, but you can also have them at the group level. Like Jonathan yeah. Haidt really illustrates this quite well in his work, where he talks about like, okay, well, say you want to get from one side of a lake to another, you can do it in a rowboat, but then somebody straps two rowboats together, and then another group gets like a uh, like ten people on a little pontoon boat. Like the more they combine their resources, the faster they can get across the lake. Right. So the groups that do that better will be more successful than the groups that don't. And I think those things, they, they work together, but I think those are separate levels of analysis. Yeah, and it helps institute morals because if you're like a murdering, lie, lying psychopath, then you're going to get ostracized from the tribe who's going to work together mm. and try to maintain some sense of order, right? Yeah, unless that murdering, genocidal stuff is actually like advantageous to the group. Like we're seeing a lot mm. of this right now with uh, the heavily collectivist Chinese government. Hmm. And how the NBA and Blizzard are basically taking the knee and hmm. saying, like, oh, yes, our, you know, <laughs> let, let's just make sure that we do everything the Chinese want. It's like, well, that's an, a really, really interesting way of infiltrating another, another country, right? Is you make hmm. your own country basically work in slave labor conditions. I know it's a bit of an exaggeration, but basically slave labor conditions so you can undercut all your competition. And then you make sure if anyone wants to be able to do business with you, they have to adopt your values. So you they're know. forced to, yeah. 
And, well, I in guess in a Western world, I suppose we've been doing this for quite some time. We're sort of like, well, if you really want to do business with us, you have to be like a free market democracy. Mm-hmm. So, in a sense, it's like if you want access to these markets, you have to adopt our values. It's just, I guess maybe we're biased because we think those values are a lot better than communism. <laughs> so, maybe now that the shoe's on the other foot and the communists are doing it to us, it's like, oh, yeah. That, <laughs> I can see why that's really annoying. Okay. But mm-hmm. still, mm-hmm. yeah, I got, uh, I got no problem with spreading the free market. You know, mm-hmm. but that, that's always sort of been the battle, right? It's like, are we going to have this rugged individualism that produces a lot of freedom and wealth? Or are we going to have this communism that can get a lot of the people to do the same thing at once? Mm-hmm. You know, because both of those are very, very powerful things, right? And which is actually going to win out in the end? You know, right. that was the question of the Cold War, I think. It's like, is it going to be this really like collective, this powerhouse? Or is it going to be this uh, smaller but more free country that can do things better? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They did beat us with Sputnik, but whatever. <laughs> Sputnik's a piece of crap, <laughs> right? And we're seeing it played out on the world stage, right? Yeah, let's do a little bit of uh, the media malfeasance because I was hoping to get into a few of these examples um, where there's a lot of people that don't really recognize that, like the media bias. They just think that they can watch, you know, CNN or read the New York Times, a former newspaper. <laughs> right and really get the truth out of it but when when you kind of see the way it's covered you realize a lot of times they just completely choose not to cover things that d- go against the narrative and they will completely blow out of proportion things that support mm. the narrative willful ignorance basically and, yeah 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 so i mean look at like the the russian hackers reading the 2016 election they've been banging on this drum for going on three years now and it's a complete nothing burger where's the evidence no evidence whatsoever but if you look at what obama did where he colluded with the Russians to get dirt on Trump, it's basically Solinsky's rules for radicals. Just accuse your opponents of what you're doing. You know? <laughs> so now Hillary Clinton's going after Trump saying, oh, you know, you colluded with the, the Ukrainians. It's like, okay, so what was that whole selling, you know, the Russians in Ukraine mm. a bunch of our uranium? That wasn't collusion at all. This was a phone call. We have the transcript. There's nothing there. Right, but they keep right. banging on this drum like, oh, this is going to be how we're going to impeach him and blah, blah, blah. And it's like... It's like the main part of their platform, too. Yeah, their entire platform is go after Trump. It's like, well, you've been trying to do this for the last few years, and you've basically mm-hmm. gotten nothing done in the meantime. Mm-hmm. And I think mm-hmm. people are starting to wake up that it's like the only reason that you're doing this is because Trump goes against the narrative. And Trump's a bit of a mixed bag. He says a lot of stupid shit. and you know, <laughs> doesn't bother us all a little bit, but I think they, uh, they do blow quite a lot out of proportion. So... Uh, the climate yeah. change stuff that we uh, we went over yesterday, the narrative basically being that, you know, climate change is going to kill us in this certain number of years, like 10 years, 12 years, mm-hmm. whatever, unless we turn over all of our freedom to the government. Mm-hmm. Then we can save the world. It's like, it's like they're not even trying anymore. <laughs> you know, it's like, here, here's like, oh, the, the, the boogeyman's going to come out of the sea with Godzilla and kill us all. So you got to give up all your freedom and money into the government. We'll save you. It's like, that doesn't sound plausible. That doesn't even sound like a good movie. And we'll tax you more. Oh, of course. It's like, oh, we'll, we'll save you with a tax. It's like, yeah, I'm sure you will. We'll call it the, the Godzilla tax. And, you know, if you just give us more money, we'll just stop Godzilla from ever showing up. And then Godzilla just never shows up. And they're like, see, it worked. It's like, God damn. Uh, so, like, this would be like the, uh, like, left-wing teenagers are basically the second coming of Jesus. Like that Greta girl. Mm-hmm. And we got to hang on their every word. But if they're right-wing teenagers, they're, you know, basically Hitler. Like those mm-hmm. Covington kids. Where they were, uh, did you ever see this? It was a, a little while ago in the States where uh, I guess this native guy started getting up in their face and someone got a picture of it and they were just standing there smiling and the media basically tore them apart, doxed yeah, them all and all this. the Make America Great Again. Yeah, because he was wearing a MAGA hat and like they were like being super polite, nothing was really out of place 
and the media completely spun it, and it was all a complete lie. Mm-hmm. This guy had approached them. They didn't approach him. Yeah, they conveniently... And, they, and, they, just, and they just missed that part out. Oops. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's uh, not an accident. And, and this is what they'll do, right? They'll publish the lie, and then three days later, they'll put a small retraction at the bottom after everyone's already read the article. So they get all yeah. their clicks, and then they issue a correction. So if they get called on, they're like, oh, yeah, but we issued a correction. It's like, well, you didn't while everyone was reading it, did you? You know, you still knowing, knowingly reported on the lie. And they put on the next thing and the next thing and yeah. never ending. And, and it keeps on going. And this is all to fit the narrative. And this is something we promised a little bit earlier about what the narrative actually is. And I think this is what it is, right? Here we go. Mm. So Western civilization. So that'd be Europe, America, Canada, Australia, the UK. It's a racist, sexist, homophobic, transphobic, and overall the most bigoted place in the world. But we can fix it all by handing over money and freedom to the state. <laughs> that's what the narrative seems to be to me mm-hmm. right so anything mm-hmm. that you say that goes against that it's like well you know maybe transphobic people are suffering from gender dysphoria and we should get them psychological help it's like nope goes against the narrative mm. yeah it's like well maybe you know it's not as racist now as it was back in the jim crow days it's like nope it's even more racist now it goes against the narrative and you're responsible for it because yeah, you're and, part of that. And of course, you share their skin color as the people who enslaved them. So, oh, yeah. and by the way, only white people ever enslaved anybody, according to the narrative. Right, right, so right. So you, you could never point out the Barbary slave trade or anything like this, where slavery was just sort of the way things were for tens of thousands of years. Because mm. it was actually probably an adaptation to just killing everybody. It's like, well, this seems kind of cruel. Why don't we just take them and sell them? It's like, well, yeah, that does seem less cruel. It's like, oh, I suppose if it's either that or, you know, face the sword. So we must hold the most guilt and uh, carry all the blame, right? Yeah, yeah. but also this push for socialism as well, I think seems to be wrapped up in it as well. Where it's like, hey, listen, we can... It's like sort of like a new age religion. Like, we can sort of absolve ourselves of our original sin if we pay these tithes to the state. Mm-hmm, and sort of give mm-hmm. ourselves over to the government rather than giving ourselves over to God as it might have been before. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it has all those same tenets. It's got its saints, it's got its sinners, it's got its, you know, original sin and all this crap, so... Its own kind of religion. Yeah, so the, the narrative is its its own kind of religion, right? Where it, nobody in and of themselves sort of makes up the entire picture, but when you put them in a big group, they all sort of amalgamate into becoming the NPC narrative. Where they all have their own personal little grievance, but all seem to agree that the solution is some sort of state intervention. Mm-hmm. Which and I, the use of force. And the use of, which is exactly what the state is. It's just a monopoly on the use of force, right? Mm-hmm. Or the monopoly mm-hmm. on the initiation of the use of force. So... If, uh, you know, you're worried about monopolies and oppression, it's like, well, why would you have a government then? That's exactly what that is. Mm-hmm. What makes you trust them yeah. so much? <laughs> and, and I don't know, right? Like, you had that, that meme that goes around as well. You saw that uh, it's like, you know, we need a government because people left unchecked will do evil. Government is made up of people left unchecked. <laughs> I love that. Okay, yeah. so, yeah. Yeah, I know it's a bit of a talking point and just a sort of a pithy one-liner, but it makes a lot of sense. Something we can tease out more so, as we go along. So what the hell are we going to do about this, Tim? Well, I came up with five things. So Let's number time. <laughs> Start with being honest with yourself. And so that involves some reflection. And this isn't easy. Maybe, maybe it's time to take a look at why you're in the place you're in. And what are some things you could fix about yourself or at least improve or yeah, make so an effort to stop improve. lying to yourself in a sense yeah, yeah listen to what you tell yourself like listen to your thoughts yeah, <laughs> for be, a while and be brutally honest like 
I used to tell myself I was going to be a rock star no matter what, but uh, thankfully it did not pan out this way and the delusion, the delusion faded and um, it was very tough for that dream to collapse, but it doesn't mean something else better can take its place. Right? Yeah, because like, I suppose at some point you probably looked at why it is you wanted to be a rock star to begin with. Yeah, yeah. You know? And For me, I gave up on that dream a long time ago when I figured out how much bloody work it would be. <laughs> it's like, are you kidding me? I don't want to travel halfway around the country on a bus. Well, I mean, maybe it might be fun once or twice, but at, like year-round? God, no, thank you. Exactly, like it's a super intense grind. Oh, man, it is. Like You read some of these autobiographies from these guys, you're like, man, they work for their money. <laughs> Yeah, and you might think it's all fun and games, but that's definitely far from the truth. That's no. what you may you what you may see on the outside because that's so. what they're selling you, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's part of that lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. People buy into that, right? Oh yeah, it's like oh yeah, get all the money and the women, and the then everything the will be solved. I <laughs> care of the world, just fucking do nothing all day. Yeah. It's like yeah, that's that's part of the image. And I just kind of realized how empty it was, and of course, there's the ideals of artistic creation and yeah. becoming better at guitar and all that. But you don't need to be a rock star to do that, mm-hmm. which is nice. Now that you especially have the, nowadays with the yeah. internet, I mean, you can send a song all the way around the world if anyone actually wants to listen to it. But there's so much to listen to because everybody can do that. So mm-hmm. the market is so saturated now. It's like, well, why would you go on tour when someone can just watch you on YouTube? Mm-hmm. With the um, improvement of technology, anyone can, you know, show their stuff, right? Yeah, and yeah. The, uh, anyone can throw around a few tracks, mm-hmm. do a little parallel bus compression. Yeah, produce it yourself. Produce it yourself. <laughs> and no problem. Like it, would, like it used to cost like hundreds of thousands of dollars to make an album. Now it almost literally costs nothing but your time. Exactly. You know, and that's uh, that's a huge, huge step up, but it also means that we're going to see a lot more in general because it's so much easier to produce now, and it wasn't just the people who were good enough to be invested in and all this stuff. So, Yeah, so for the next one, I'd say develop a love of truth. Now, again, this is a very hard thing, but to me, there's always a liberating effect of hearing the truth and finally discovering it so um just learning uh, about some way in a way that i can improve myself like maybe i'm gonna work on ways on being less moody with people and maybe i'll you know i'll do what i can to take care of myself so i can be my best version when i interact with people and i'll pay attention with how i affect people and Acknowledge everything, basically, as much as I possibly can. Yeah, and I mean, developing a love of truth, it's probably not going to be as easy as, say, developing a love of chocolate, (laughs) developing a love of cocaine. (laughs) It's it's not... Truth is never easy. It's It's usually harsh. It'll usually take the wind out of you half the time because you're like, that's probably true. (laughs) Yeah, it's belligerent and it, it burns. Yeah, so it's sort of like developing a good relationship with cardio. You know, yeah, nobody, yeah, yeah. nobody really likes it, but the people that do it tend to like it because you have to like it in a sense. You got to enjoy the rush, the burn, the pain, the euphoria that comes with the runner's high. And you're looking at it long term, and like long-term the effects games, it'll have yeah. on you. So that's that's the kind of relationship you got to develop with truth. Think of it like getting up at six in the morning to go for a run. It's like that would suck just mm. for the first little while, but after a while, you kind of learn that it. Wow, this is way better than living a lie in bed. Mm-hmm. Wait, wait lie in bed <laughs> nice okay nice nice yeah nice juxtaposition with uh 
was cleverer yeah. when I thought about it. Anyway. And, and, and just think of the opposite. Like, if you're avoiding, if you're avoiding truth on a constant basis, yeah, like, that's you're just not... lying in bed. <laughs> <laughs> and that'll make you depressed. Yeah. Because yeah. um, you can't really lie to yourself for too long, right? You know, you know, yeah. you know that you're lying. And because, you know, you know yourself. So eventually the anxiety and frustration will build up to a point where it's like, okay, I've got to do something. Okay. God, you're right. If I want to change something, right? Yeah. <laughs> so um so I'd say aim for a balanced nu nuanced less extreme perspective as opposed to one side. So I'd say like relish in the gray area of things. Like don't ignore the black and white. There are things that are black and white, but there's also a gray area and shades of gray. Yeah, learn your, your opponent's position ten times better than they know it. Yeah. That's a good way to do it, because then you, you can still have an opinion and land on one side, but at least you know why you're on that side. And you can have laser-precise arguments that yeah. really get to the heart of things. Yeah, and it's okay to disagree with things on principle. Yeah. You know, instead of consequence only, I mean... You can dispute mm -hmm. anything based on principle, even if a person comes at you with a consequence, you'd be like, no, it doesn't matter. Yeah, conflict is okay. <laughs> it's fine to have a disagreement. Yeah, yeah. And that's, I think, something we, we could relearn overall. Um, the next one I'd say is align perceptions with reality and accept it. So instead of wanting something to be the way you think it should be um maybe it's important to investigate it a bit more and realize this is something you can actually change or not or or adapt to it yeah and if you can change it just accept that this is the way it is it doesn't have to be yeah. good or bad or anything it just this is how it is mm-hmm mm -hmm. you know because if yeah. you don't have perceptions that are aligned with reality you're going to run into that wall eventually and if we don't ally with reality, we can't really evolve, I would say. Or change reality. Yeah. Right? You can't really... If you don't accept it, you can't change it. If you don't measure it, you can't change it. So yeah. if you're not being accurate in your perceptions, you're never going to be accurate in your solutions because you're not even changing a problem that exists. <laughs> right? You're just making up a problem and trying to fix it and breaking a bunch of shit on yeah. the side. So it's like, yeah, acknowledging things at like their most basic level that is almost indisputable. Yeah. In a sense. Right? And this would bring us to our final point about discerning the difference between objectivity and subjectivity. So yep. if I say two plus two equals four and you say I don't feel that it does, <laughs> it's like, okay, well, we can't really have a conversation, right? It's, it's not really an emotional if I, thing. <laughs> and, then, and then I say, well, how do you figure? And then you're like, well, because my favorite color is blue. It's like, <laughs> that's not related and it's really subjective. So. And it makes no sense. And it makes no sense. So I'm going to go stand over here. Yeah, and consider that um, like the very root word of objective means to reveal. Mm. So um, It's something that already exists and you're just noticing it. You're not yeah, putting or, any Or discovering it, yeah. Yeah, it's already there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's not to... Again, it's not to say that there aren't objective and subjective truth, but I think it matters where they're applied. Where, uh, yeah, and how you how you perceive them essentially and hmm. what you do with them yeah that makes sense so just as a final closing thought i think it's important that we align ourselves to truth rather than falsehood otherwise i think we're going to end up with way worse problems than we have now 
Absolutely. And don't be afraid to ask questions and be curious about things because that can help take it to the next level. So, Well, on that note, thanks very much for taking the time to tune in with us again today on the Sorted Skeptics. We'll see you guys next time. Bye.